0: Well, here we are at the um, 13th week of our series, The Signature of Jesus. I've heard from a lot of you that um, this has been a significant series in your life. How the Lord's opened um, your eyes, your heart, and your mind is truth. And that's true for me. You know, you get to um, deal with the message and these texts if you get the e-newsletter and do the homework. For maybe three or four days of the week, but I get it for at least seven, uh, if not more. The uh, two texts that we've chosen today to end this series, but in a sense, it's sort of a segue to the next four messages uh, in Advent. We're calling it uh, the signature of Jesus first penned, because you can see in Jesus coming to earth... And the message communicated to the people that he communicated his message to in his genealogy, in this woman Mary, in the shepherds who received the angel's message, and in the wise men, how God himself is one who continues to do justice and love kindness. He's always on the side of the poor, the least and the last and the lost, that's the message. That's where we need to be, because that's who we are. So these two passages are, well, if you're into food, filet mignon. John chapter six, beginning in verse thirty-five. Jesus said to them. Now, the them is not only the disciples, but the Jewish leaders and all who were listening. I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me drags him. That's the translation of that Greek word. Three times in the New Testament, drags him. And I will raise him up at the last day. And then the other piece of filet, Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 32. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each of us, each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring." by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionys, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. It was Christmas Eve. All the shoppers were in a hurry. But some of them would stop because they heard the music. They listened to this local mission band play Christmas carols. And when the band leader observed that the crowd was big enough, he would often turn to one of his band members and ask them to give a testimony. And so he did. He turned to the drummer and said, Chuck, will you give your testimony? And Chuck smiled widely and said, I will. I will. He said, I used to be a sinner. I caroused. I drank. I gambled. And then suddenly his smile left his face and he said, Now all I do is beat this stupid drum. But nobody laughed. This week, we were in Florida. We had a conversation with a man. We're having lunch and he turned the conversation to church and he said, you know, I know one of your friends is right up the street preaching at that church. Do you know what kind of money he makes? I mean, he wears those Gucci shoes and he talks about how they're all Christian. And then you get in the parking lot and you can't even get out. It's every man for himself. He said, on Sunday they think they're good. But on Monday through Saturday, they live like hell. He's not alone in his assessment. Somebody has said when Noah was preaching as he was building the ark, he didn't say, Smile, God loves you. He said, Repent. When John the Baptist was in the wilderness eating locust and honey and preaching, He wasn't preaching something good is going to happen to you. He was preaching repent. The Greek word for repent is metanoia. It means to turn around. And you know, for generations in the church, metanoia has been preached and taught as if it's a change of behavior. Change your ways. Repentance means to stop doing something and doing something else. And yet that misses the mark badly. Three years short of 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed 95 declarations of faith, 95 theses to the door of his church in Wittenberg, Germany. And that was the beginning of the Reformation. Now, a number of people know that. But that's where the Reformation began. But you know what most people don't know? Is what those 95 theses said. You can Google them. You know the first thesis? All of life is repentance. That's what Luther said. All of life is repentance. Let me give you his exact words. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. You see, Luther understood that repentance was more than changing your act. It was more than making decisions about what you would do. Doing A instead of B. Where did he get it? Where did he get a fuller understanding of repentance? Well, one place he got it was Luke chapter 7. Remember the story Jesus is having dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house? And they're sitting there reclining at the table eating and a woman comes in and she begins to anoint Jesus' feet with oil and her own tears. She kisses his feet. She wipes the oil and her tears off of his feet with her own hair. And Luke says, as Simon watches this woman do this, he thinks to himself, if this man knew who this woman was, he'd stop her right now. And then Jesus turns to Simon and says, Simon, let me tell you a story. Now, ladies and gentlemen, every time Jesus stops and looks at you and says, let me tell you a story, it's not good news. It's probably a corrective, and it's certainly a corrective here. He says, here's a story. There was a man who was owed two debts. One man owed him 50 denarii. That's 50 days' wages. Another man owed him 500 days' wages. And the man who was owed these debts forgave both debtors. Now, let me ask you, Simon... Which one of those debtors loved the master more? And Simon said, well, I mean, it's obvious. It had to be the guy who owed the larger debt. And Jesus says, you know, Simon, from the moment I got in your house, you didn't wash my feet, which was normally the custom. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. But yet this woman who wasn't invited, she comes in and she's anointing my feet with oil and her own tears. You see, the difference between the two of you is not measured in terms of morality. It's measured in terms of repentance. You see, she knows the size of her debt and she knows the size of my forgiveness of that debt. Somebody has said if you only understand repentance in terms of your own behavior, you'll always be frustrated. But when you begin to understand repentance is depending upon his behavior, Jesus works, then all of a sudden there's joy and there's life and there's love and there is greater faith. Why? Because repentance, fixed in the finished works of Jesus, always begins to free us from idols. An idol is anything in your life that gives you an identity other than Jesus. An idol in your life and my life, is anything that gives us a sense of worth and identity other than Jesus. Forty-three years ago, I'm in a church that meets in a women's club. It's a charismatic fellowship. There's dancing. There's tongues and interpretation. There's healing. There's prophecy. And our pastor is a guy who's a Bible student. Went to Bible college. At that time in my life, he was the most learned Bible scholar I knew. He loved the Lord. He knew a little Greek and Hebrew. (laughs) He operated in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'll never forget the time he preached on this text, Acts chapter 17. 43 years ago, I remember what he said. He introduces the text. And starting from scratch, he gives us the background. He said, before we read what Paul did in Athens, let's look what he did in Berea in, chapter, in verse 10 of the same chapter. Luke says he's in Berea, he's preaching and teaching, and many believed. Listen to verse 12. Many of them believed men and women, rich and poor. A wide cross-section of people believed in Jesus. But in Athens, it's different. Only a few people believe after he preaches and teaches. And my pastor said the reason that only a few believed in Athens and many believed in Berea was that in Berea, he preached in the fullness of the Holy Spirit and in Athens he was preaching in the flesh. You know why he said he, that he was preaching in the flesh? Because Luke says he stood in the Areopagus and he reasoned with them. You see, my pastor said he depended on his reason rather than on the Spirit. And the reason my pastor said that was because my pastor wasn't reasoning very well. Are you kidding me? Preaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit means you don't use your reason? Are you serious? If that's the case, Jesus never preached. He reasons with Simon. He reasons with you and me. For 13 weeks, we've looked at what it means to bear the signature of Jesus. And it's Micah chapter 6 verse 8. Doing justice, loving kindness and walking humbly with him. But where does that all begin? It all begins with repentance. It all begins with the culling of idols from our lives. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than in Paul's discourse at Athens so let's dig in first of all notice where Paul goes look at verse 17 so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there now that was the stumbling block for my pastor 43 years ago that he reasoned with them you know what that means It means he got into their space. He began to reason through things with them. Now, it's interesting. At the time of the Apostle Paul, there were three great cultural centers in the world. Rome, Alexandria, and Athens. But none of them had the history and the culture, and the religion, and the philosophy of Athens. 150 years before Paul, the power center of the world moved from Greece to to Rome, from Athens to Rome. And yet, Athens retained the cultural, religious, and philosophical center of the world. And so what does Paul do? He gets to this great city of Athens, and he doesn't stay in the synagogue. He goes into the marketplace... And there, in the Greek, it says, he raises his voice every day in the marketplace. Now, you need to know that the marketplace is not the strip district in Pittsburgh. It's nothing like Pike's Market in Seattle. It's not like the Italian market in Philadelphia. Everything is in the marketplace in Athens, except junkyard. The courts are there. The art galleries are there, the dance halls are there, the businesses are there, the media is there, the philosophers are there. Whatever you want, culturally, economically, philosophically, theologically, you find it in the agora, the marketplace. So Luke says, Paul doesn't simply stay in the synagogue, he goes into the marketplace. Why Because he understands Proverbs chapter 1. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. Meaning what? Meaning the wisdom of God is not a private matter. The wisdom of God is not simply something that you and I experience for ourselves. It's not just for the synagogue, it's not just for the church building, it's not just for the gathering of the body. Paul understood that the Lord created everything, and everything was created for him. And so he says to his people, come let us reason together. But Paul understood when God said that to his own people, Israel, he's also saying that to every person alive. Come let us reason together. So what's Paul do? He goes into the marketplace, and he raises his voice, and he begins to reason with them. Second, notice how Paul felt. Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, some English translators translate it as the ESV does, provoked. Some say he was distressed. But neither of those two words capture the essence of the Greek word. The Greek word that is used here is the same root word that is translated in English, seizure. As he stands in the marketplace and he perceives their idolatry, Luke says he is seized with emotion. It's very similar to the word John uses in describing Jesus' reaction at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. John says, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come out with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was deeply troubled. That's exactly what happens to Paul. When Paul sees a city full of idols, he's not indignant, he's grieved. Somebody said that the opposite of love is not hatred, it's indifference. The opposite of love is not to say, I hate you. It's to say, I don't care anything about you. You're totally insignificant to me. These people in Athens are not totally insignificant to Paul. They're totally significant to him. He is grieved for them. He's in pain for them. He loves them. I love the story Brennan Manning tells of how an old Hasidic rabbi in the Ukraine understood what love was. He said one day he was at a bar and he saw two men, two peasant men, gloriously in their cups, drunk as skunks, with their arms around each other, and they were talking to each other and telling each other how much they loved each other. Suddenly, Ivan turns to Peter and says, Peter, tell me what hurts me. Peter said, I don't know what hurts you. How can I possibly know what hurts you? And then Ivan, in a moment of great clarity, said, if you don't know what hurts me, how can you love me? I mean, you think of that. Have there any been... Has there ever been more profound truth spoken? If you don't know what hurts me, how can you love me? Paul stands in the marketplace. He's not angry. He's not indifferent. He's in abject pain. He's grieved for them. Why is he grieved for them? Because he sees them just as he once was. Wise and significant and totally imprisoned by their own idols. They're gaining their worth. They're gaining their sense of self. They're gaining their identity from idols rather than from the one who alone can satisfy them. Third, notice what he saw. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. Now, some translate that, I see that in every way you're religious. But that's not the Greek word. It's not blepo, which means to see. It's therio, from which we get the word therapy. He's perceiving. He's not simply seeing. He's analyzed this. He thought about it. He's thinking on these idols, and he concludes that everywhere he looks, there are idols. Under every one of their decisions, under every one of their moral decisions, under every one of their intellectual affirmations, under every one of their psychological attachments, under every one of their life choices, they are worshiping an idol that drives them to do what they do. And that's exactly the culture in which we live. That's exactly the story of your life and my life. Under all that we do, all of our commitments, there are these idols that seek to capture our attention. Years ago, I remember talking to a woman who said, if anything ever happened to my kids... I'd end it all. Now, I talked to her a lot, and that was the few times there was an unguarded, unmasked revelation of what she really believed. If anything happened to my kids, it's over for me. Recently, I talked with a man who told me about how hurt he was because nobody had reached out to him in six months. So, what he, had he done? He had become a recluse. He'd retreated into self-pity and isolation. Why? Because of his idol. What was his idol? A desperate need for the approval of others. He desperately wanted people to care for him, and they didn't. And it was destroying him. You see, an idol is anything that draws our identity and worth into it. It may be a child. It may be a marriage. It may be a relationship. It may be a job. It may be a mask we wear. It may be a fear of being destitute. Jesus, I mean, you read the Gospels. Jesus is in the business of pinpointing idols. The woman at the well. What's her idol? The fear of being alone. So she's had five husbands and the guy she's living with at the time is not her husband. The rich young ruler, what's his idol? The fear of being destitute and out of control. His idol was control. Zacchaeus, what's his idol? The need for acceptance. Pilate, what's his idol? The need to retain his power. You see, there are idols everywhere. Listen to what Paul says. I perceive that in every way you're very religious. You are all worshiping something that will never satisfy you Because it was never meant to satisfy you. Now here's the diagnostic for you in your own life regarding your own idols. Ask yourself this question when you pinpoint your idol. Say, what would happen to me if it died? What would happen to me if it disappeared? What would happen to me if I lost it? You see, what Paul is doing here in Athens is he's doing justice and he's loving kindness. He's not indifferent to them. He's pain for them, and his pain is born of the Spirit of God. It's a seizure-like pain that compels him to love them and to pinpoint their idols. And then fourth and finally, notice what he does. Look at verses thirty-one and 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now notice, Paul doesn't just point to the problem. Their idolatry, he points to the solution, Jesus. He tells them the reason their idols will never satisfy them is because the one who made them, made them for himself. And the same is true for you and me. There's no way an idol will satisfy us. Have you ever thought about the objective reality of Jesus No idol is real. Whether it's money or power or privilege or human love, it's all subjective. It's all like the wind. It's here one day, gone tomorrow. I talked to a guy who drove a cab in Florida. He said he used to work for Enron. He did a lot of construction for Enron. They gave him a choice every time he did a job. Give you $100,000, $200,000 or double that in stock. He always took the stock. He said he was rich on paper. And then one day, he became homeless. All of your assets aren't really real. They're transitory. Whether it be money, whether it be power, whether it be privilege, whether it be status, whether it be a person. Paul is saying before Jesus... You could believe whatever you wanted to believe. You could worship whatever you wanted to worship, and it would be just as significant as what the other person was worshiping. You were all on your own. But after Jesus, there's no excuse. Why? Because God became a man. The greatest difference between Christianity and every other religion is our God became a man. And that God-man lived, and he died Not for himself, but for every one of us. Think of Paul. Wise, sophisticated, religious, and living a life full of idols. Then God became a man. And then that man revealed himself to him. Everything changed. He's the only one who can meet your need. He's the only one that can satisfy you and me. He's the only one who can fix our identity on his works, his record of achievement. And isn't it interesting? He will judge us not based on what we do, but based on what he's done. And what he's done is fixed. It'll never fail. It'll never go away. You know something? When you know that, not just in your head, but you really know that in your heart, the signature of Jesus begins to be indelibly written, more boldly on your life. You begin to live for others. You begin to give yourself to the least and the last and the lost. You really begin to love the poor and the needy and the broken and the idle-filled because you know that that is exactly who You are, and Jesus loved you enough to change you. You begin to challenge the idols in your life. You begin to work not by, or walk not by your own works, but by grace. You begin to be more and more like Paul, enthralled with Jesus. And you begin to realize that all of your life, depends on all of his life. For he is the only one who can satisfy us. He is all we need. And when you know he has you, and you have him, then idols begin to fall over. They begin to be called from your life. And doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly with Him is not something you have to gut out. It's something that flows out. His finished work, not just His passive righteousness being nailed to a cross, But his active righteousness, building a record of achievement that he now gives to you and me. That's the meaning of this table. That's why in this first Sunday of Advent, we gather around the table to do what he talked about in John chapter 6. Eating his bread, drinking his cup. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are the one who writes your signature on our lives. And we are all little idol factories, so easily distracted. We thank you that you've come into our marketplace. You've reasoned with us. You've demonstrated to us time and time again that anything short of you is not enough. So we ask that you take these elements, set them apart from a common to a sacred purpose that as we eat and drink today, we might be enthralled with you, and that your work might continue to go forth through us. In Jesus' name, amen.